Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Emmaus Way. Come on in and grab a chair. Uh, the coffee is brewed this evening. Uh, the hot water, I think, is warm, if not hot. And uh, the uh, snacks are available and uh, worth checking out. And um, love to have you grab your order of worship, uh, which is a couple sheets tonight, including Job 28, which we're talking about, which is a page, uh, passage about wisdom. And uh, I'm glad Travis is talking about it. I don't know anything about it. Uh, but Travis said he is squared away. He is wise and ready to answer your questions this evening. So uh, I believe uh, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop? That's one of the things he will be answering this evening. Yeah. I was trying to remember things that we needed you to know. <laughs> We are continuing our series on uh, poetry in the Bible, and uh, this uh, section of Job is part of the wisdom literature, part of poetry, uh, storytelling, uh, narrative in Scripture. And so, uh, anyway, uh, that's what we'll be jumping into in a minute. Tonight, we're going to start with our call to gather, which is a, uh, a song sort of taking a, a different turn of looking at culture and saying a lot of the things that we think we need, maybe we don't need. And uh, it's a song called Throw It All Away uh, from uh, the Toad, the Wet Sprocket folks. So it's pretty easy to pick up. I'll sing uh, along and uh, you can join in. Take your cautionary tales. Take your incremental gains. And all the sycophantic games. Throw it all away Burn your TV in your yard Gather around it with your friends And warm your hands upon the fire Start again Take the stories you've been sold Justify the pain, the guilt and weighs upon your soul, and throw it all away. So start with me again. Take your cautionary tales. Take your cautionary tales. Take your incremental gains and all the sycophantic games. Throw it all away. TV in your yard and gather around it with your friends and warm your hands upon the fire start again and take the story you've been sold the lies that justify the pain the guilt that weighs upon your soul Tear up that calendar you bought Throw the pieces to the sky Confetti falling down like rain Like a parade to usher in your life Take the dreams that should have died Ones that kept you lying awake When you should have been alright 
To Amaze Way, if I cannot, uh, thank you. We tried to put in a tricky spot. I know, right? Yeah. I think we have the same rug under our dining room table, mm. and it's like a game of like grabs your chair, every Jenga time. or yeah. something, where you have to be super careful. What's that one from when you're a kid? Don't break the ice. Yes, exactly. Well, welcome to Amaze Way. I am Amy, and I am one of our pastors here. Um, it's good to see everybody on this warm summer day. Um, couple things going on tonight. First, if this is your first time with us, um, welcome. If this is the first time in a long time, welcome. And if this is your 395th time, welcome too. Um, we are a community that gathers each week to talk about the way that the gospel has invaded our lives and the way that that plays out in the communities around us. Um, so we gather on Sundays to worship together, and we also uh, do life together throughout the week. And that looks kind of a lot of different ways. So on Thursdays, we meet at the pub at Bull McCabe's to do a pub group, which is our kind of life theology politics group. Um, And of course, beer is involved in that. Um, And if you were interested in getting on that listserv, Dan Rhodes sends out a reading each week. And so Dan is right here, and his email is on our uh, handout as well. Um, We also do several home groups uh, that meet throughout the area. Um, our contact person for that is Elizabeth Eford, who is back with our kids tonight, um, but her email is also on there, or you can ask any of the pastors. A um, couple things coming up in the life of Emmaus Way, or coming up and recently passed. Um, this uh, past weekend, yesterday, we had a women's art uh, workshop on soul care during transition times, and it was a wonderful uh, kind of couple hours. We had a really good time gathering and um, We actually set up little tables over there with the sun coming in, and there were no screaming children, and there were uh, lots of good conversations and good insights. And so some of our artwork that we made yesterday um, is out here, what Sarah is holding right there. So if you're interested in kind of what went on there or learning more about soul care through the arts. Um, We would love to chat with you about that. Um, There are several women here that attended, myself, Sarah, Sharon, um, Susan, basically all of the S names. If there's an S name, you can probably guess that they went. Um, But it was a really great time, and so we're looking forward to doing more integration with the arts um, and doing different uh, types of workshops and things 
Also coming up this week at uh, Duke Divinity, there is a uh, conference that Dan Rose is going to tell us a little bit more about. Uh, dying well, is that the kind of theme? So a real exciting theme, uh, <laughs> dying well and caring for the dying. Um, it's actually on August 10th, which is a Friday. Uh, it's an all-day conference. I think it goes from 8 to 4.30 p.m. Um, but registration, if you're interested in it, uh, is due, I think, this Friday, so August 3rd. Um, if you're interested, shoot me an email. Like Amy said, my email address is on the form that you're holding. Um, there's a lot of, I've heard Alan Verhey is one of the speakers. I've heard him talk about kind of the art of dying and how to care for people who are dying. Um, it's really interesting stuff. I know that sounds kind of uh, dark and kind of uh, maybe uh, uh, just miserable, but it's a, there'll probably be some really interesting stuff going on. The, the cost is only $20, which includes food, parking, coffee, so basically, you're just paying for that uh, between the parking and the food. It's probably over $20. So uh, if you're interested, send me an email. I'll pass the flyer and the registration form on to you. Great. Thanks, Amy. I just noticed none of the email stuff made it on the Aha. So you might want to go to the website. Yes. Good eye. Or catch one of us uh, after or during service. We'd be glad to jot those emails down for you. Or maysway.net. Um, Film series. Are we still? Do we have another one planned, Ben? Can I? I just have another one for short notice for this Friday at um, 7:30 at the Bussman. They're going to host us again. We're going to be watching Days of Heaven. So now it's second film, a young Richard Gere. <laughs> and beyond, just, beyond Richard Gere, it's a sumptuous, beautiful. Film. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it's awesome. set in the Texas Panhandle in the 19-teens. Yes. <laughs> anyway, come out and join us Friday night, 7.30 at the Busman's. I'll have an email out tonight with directions and such. Great. And is that something that if people haven't been to previous ones, they're welcome to yeah, stop by? We've had people show up at all levels of preparedness. Nice. So you're welcome even if you haven't seen a Malik film ever in your life. Awesome. Or if you don't know what a young Richard Gere looks like, perhaps. Come to find out. <laughs> um, great. Well, tonight is um, a both sad and bittersweet night. We are going to send off our beloved Tara Gibbs. Um, this is our last night, uh, Tara's last night with us at Emmaus Way. Um, so I'm going to call her up and ask her to kind of tell me what is next for her, um, things that we can keep in mind and pray for her about, um, but really just to hear Tara's voice again because it is a great, wonderful, um, very, it's, it's been a great voice to hear. So, um, Tara, do you want to come sit with me for a minute? Either one. Which one looks more? I'm tall, too. You are tall. I'll just make my feel even super shorter. <laughs> so, Tara, for the past year, has been our K-5 through uh, children's teacher and has just been an amazing gift to us and to our children. Um, and Tara is also starting her second year uh, of her MDiv program at Shaw University. And so, Tara, what is kind of next for you? What are the next steps that um, you're going to be doing in your life and work? Okay. Afternoon, everyone. Um, so just basically next, um, I actually just started a new job at Bank of America, um, which I'm really excited about because bills have to be paid for college students. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about that. I always love working with helping people, no matter if it's the kids or adults. I love helping people. 
Um, so that's new and exciting. I actually just moved to Raleigh, so I've been commuting here um, every Sunday. Um, I also, for those who don't know, I'm also a licensed minister in the Baptist Association. So um, I have a ministry in Durham as well that I, um, under my pastor, Reverend Dr. Glenn R. Davis. So I've been stepping up in, in that area as well. And it's just been uh, a little time-consuming to... And I feel like I'm stretching myself different ways to to do work, um, ministry, um, try to keep my sanity, and um, to be here with your youth. Um, so after some prayer and talking to God, he's, he's led me in some other ways um, to focus on my ministry, and especially academically this season. And I don't think it's fair to um, try to juggle everything at one time and not give all of myself in one area. And I, I don't think that's fair, especially to your wonderful kids. So um, just felt like it's time to... To move on to some other things. Did I answer your question? Yes, absolutely. Okay. We, no interview. Oh, no interview. No, yes, that's right. Um, we absolutely understand that, that tension here at Amaze Way. There's lots of people doing that every day, that life-work balance. And so we have just so enjoyed the time that you have been here with us. Um, and hope nothing but the best for your next season. And would love to keep in contact and hear updates on how things are going. Um, and... Right now, we would love to kind of know what can we pray for you in this next uh, season of your life? What are some things uh, on your mind? Okay. Um, I definitely would appreciate prayers um, for God's blessing and favors academically. Um, as of right now, I still have a 4.0, and it's not by my might. It's by God's spirit, and I'm so thankful, and I'd like to keep that up so I can get more financial aid. Um, and just to show myself approved in God, doing the best I can academically. Um, so academics, um, always more guidance um, to making sure I'm here and doing what God would have me to do in every aspect of my life is also greatly appreciated. Um, prayers also for my family um, are also appreciated as well. Well, let's pray for Tara. God, we are grateful for the gift of Tara, for her uh, leadership with our children, for her love of our children. She has just brought such joy and, um, and passion to her classroom and to really just the, the lives of our children um, each and every Sunday. We pray that as Tara goes through this next stage of her life, Lord, that you would be um, her guidance, that you would uh, keep her mind clear and keep her focused, Lord. We pray that um, her family would remain around her as a strong support, Lord, that, um, that she would feel that she has all the resources that she needs to, um, to, to do her best academically and um, in her ministry. Tara, Lord, we are grateful for the, um, the gift of Tara in this time, and we pray that she would know that she always has a place at Amaze Way, that this is a community that loves her um, and that cherishes her, and that she would go from this place feeling uh, blessed and, and, and taken care of. It's in your holy name that we pray, Lord. Amen. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you taking some time with us, Tara, and then running back to dive into the uh, coal mines. No, no, I know you love them. They love you. That's the cool thing, too. Um, so uh, we're going to look at our um, song of preparation tonight. Um, and uh, when we do this, this oftentimes, too, comes around a, a time of prayers of the people. And uh, so... As you see this uh, section of our gathering uh, in terms of the liturgy, uh, know that this is a time where we're, we, we want to raise issues that are related to the text, 
but they also might be issues that bring uh, thoughts and prayers to mind to you as well. Uh, this song is um, one that I wrote about my grandfather, and the, the lyrics came uh, out of, uh, some of you already know this story, but for those of you who don't, I'll tell it again, uh, of um, a, a conversation that Tim Condor and I were having about uh, the American West and, and the, the uh, kind of the myth of the American West and the cowboy and the hero uh, the, the guy that wore the white hat kind of idea, the guys who would, in, in contrast to the guys wearing the black hats. And so one of the stories that we realized was so uh, prevalent in our American culture, whether it's a movie like Star Wars or so many other things that are just commonplace to us, is this idea of a hero that's a lone hero, the Lone Ranger type of idea where this person doesn't need anybody and they use violence to solve their problems. And on top of that, they really are not able to be part of a community but somehow they save some poor community and then ride off into the sunset whatever that means and my dad used to always talk about my grandfather and say you know he was a real John Wayne but in a lot of ways my dad wasn't very close to his own father and so it was confusing to hear him talk about him as sort of a hero and yet uh, not really know how to relate to him in a lot of ways and uh, then my grandfather's life began to change through some different events that show up in the song and I think Towards the end of his life, he began to value some things a little bit differently. So uh, in terms of this idea that we're going to talk about tonight of where wisdom come from, comes from, this is, I think, a story of sort of a, con a conventional story of wisdom and then sort of transformation. Was a real John Wayne, so my dad said, about the man who raised him when he wasn't with another woman. When he was undefeated, sitting in his chair With a failed business, a mostly failed marriage, and odd temper His fists were like steel, he was good in a fight At least the kind where you hit someone else he was loyal except when he wanted to bet some sweet young thing You could trust him with anything So getting past his failures or swallowing his pride Enough to work for another man Even when his family was flat broke John Wayne to my dad always said about the man we call Papa who had a great joke and a fiery tale except when he was mad or brooding and staring at the TV in a trance and let you know he was looking for life with something True, he was as tough as nails He was a bomber pilot He drove a convertible He rode Harleys Till his knee got crushed in an accident And he gained too much weight For his heart to support All the diets and surgeries And bleeding in the world Wouldn't save him 
couldn't save him in the end. Till the same man ran into Jesus Building hospitals in Africa It was a favor to the local church It was there in a mud hut On his knees he actually began To walk a little taller Begin to speak With a little more confidence again He'd gone to try to be the cowboy One more time With a shovel With a hard hat Yeah, he was gonna teach those poor blacks How to build something for real But what he got was loved Shown how to work all day in the African sun Like no man he'd ever known Ever known. And he learned he could be entertained with a warm coke that costs a year's wages. Someone gave him out of respect. Not just any man, it was a black man who was wearing the white hat. started changing from the inside out My dad didn't really know what to call him then I think maybe we should call him our brother instead our custom uh, before we dive into Job we are going to um, pass the peace of Christ so stand up uh, greet the folks around you um, if you haven't met somebody introduce yourself offer the peace of Christ and I will call us back in just a few minutes so this is a poem Langston Hughes uh, wrote about Walt Whitman old Walt Whitman went finding and seeking finding less than sought seeking more than found every detail minding of the seeking or the finding, pleasured equally in seeking as in finding, each detail minding, 
Old Walt went seeking and finding. It's probably safe to say we've all been in those situations where we know what to do and we just don't want to do it. Um, I can't tell stories about Eli yet because he doesn't really have any funny stories and if I tell a story about Amy it might come back to bite me so I'm going to tell a story about myself. <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, uh, growing up, my, my father was a pastor and so I grew up always like at church um, endlessly at night waiting for choir practice or some meeting or whatever to be over with. Um, and often I would wait in the church library where I probably read the entirety of the um, Hardy Boys and Encyclopedia Brown and those kind of books. Um, but the library was where the copying machine was. And being the kind of kid who liked to tinker with things, I would uh, mess around with it. And uh, so one night I was, you know, opening all the little doors and cool stuff and um, pulled out the thing of toner and dropped it. And this kind of black cloud erupts uh, and spreads this fine kind of black powder everywhere. Um, so obviously the thing to do at that point would be to go and get an adult. Did I get an adult? No. No, no. I decided I would clean this up myself with water. <laughs> Which, if you know anything about copier toner, it's, it's a powder. It'd be kind of hard to clean up. I guess I could have got a vacuum, but with water, it just turns it back into ink. I made uh, a situation worse before I would go back and do the thing I should have done in the first place. Sometimes the right thing to do is clear, and we just have to bite the bullet. But a lot of the times, we genuinely don't know what to do. We would love for somebody to give us some kind of assignment, even a difficult assignment. You need to confess to that person. You need to give back the money. You need to move to that city and take that job. And it might be hard, but if we knew it was the right thing, we would do it. We're looking for wisdom. So before we get into Job, I want to just open that out to all of you. What are those situations or places, and you can be as specific or as vague as you want, uh, think individually or kind of societally. We have a lot of things right now that I think we don't know what to do about. What are those places where you just ask, what is the wise th thing here? I just don't know what to do about this. Pros and cons, and then there's economic issues and time issues, and what do you, yeah. And this doesn't have to be religious like things at all. This can be any situations like that. Good. Any other ones? Wait. I was really struck uh, watching the opening ceremonies of the Olympics about how complicated that's become for the host nation. That like the whole idea of how do you include the world and how do you say our country's great and how do you you know talk about this thing that used to be sort of about sport i guess and now is mostly about money and it's occasionally about sports i guess there's some things like still twirling things that most people don't get paid a lot for but then there's all this so it's it's just become this really crazy thing that's like sort of for world peace and stuff and then sort of for competition and then 
sort of for money. And it just seems to have lost its sense of what it is, I think, in certain mm-hmm. ways. And I just was really struck that everyone's trying to figure out how to package it, and no one really knows what to do with it. And they always, I think that the economists will say that it doesn't actually help the country at all, and they, well, yeah, the money kind of so balances out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that can be complicated. What are these symbolic things that we do that, that may do more, that can lose their meaning yeah. over time? Yeah. Look. That has been one that I thought, like, I was going to make once and then be done with, is kind of like, what am I supposed to do with my life? Mm-hmm. And it just keeps biting me in the butt, you know? It's like, <laughs> you know, you decide on a major in college, and then you're like, wait, I don't think I really wanted to do that. And then you go back to college, and you're like, no, wait, I don't think I wanted to do that either. And, you know, and then, like, health issues come in, and then things and other life things intervene. And so I feel like I'm constantly making up being having to remake that decision over and over again, like, what, it, what do I do with myself now, you know? And it's, I, I thought that was, I, I mean, maybe at one point in time that used to be something you could do, you could make that decision once. Yeah, 15 or something, decide yeah, what are you going to do for the rest of your life. It doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Yeah, that's a big, occupation, professional, all that kind of stuff is a big one. For me, I, I, I find myself the most at odds or at, at a loss, um, with like family conflict type situations where you have multiple kind of competing loyalties and I just, I kind of freeze up those, those situations. Anybody else? often true with an older relative or somebody that you may be, what am I, I, I want you to get better? I don't know if I want that. You know, what's, what's the best thing? Not, <laughs> speaking of death and dying. Um, yeah, it's hard to know. It's hard to know what to do. Yeah, those are, I think, all exactly the kind of type situations where, uh, from which the poet of our text tonight is crying out, where is wisdom? Where's understanding? Where's insight? What do I do? What do we do? So we're continuing this kind of summer series we've been doing on Old Testament poetry and, and the visual arts uh, here with Job 28. So I'm going to kind of reintroduce Job, uh, remind us where we've been in this series a little bit, and then we'll look more closely at this text. Uh, Sarah's going to read it in a little bit, and then uh, some art pieces as well. And I don't think, uh, if you weren't here for Job, that you will, when I did it last time, that you'll have missed much. Um, Job as a whole, is this book of intense questions, testimonies, cross-examinations, speeches, arguments, and deep silence about why do good people suffer? Why is there so much destruction in the world? Where, where is God in all of this? And it takes place in these series of kind of extended debates or arguments uh, between Job and his friends and God. I said that Job was in this wisdom tradition along with books uh, like Ecclesiastes, which, which Dan uh, led us through in Proverbs, which tackle these kind of big questions, big themes of life, but they aren't this kind of just speculative 
uh, questioning, but, but really getting at how do we respond wisely and practically to life as we find it. And so in the middle of all this, we find Job 28. A lot of your translations, if you look at it, will say something like an interlude or an intermission or something. It's kind of this poem or hymn that sort of stands alone in the middle of Job. It relates to the themes, but it doesn't seem to have a whole lot plot-wise to do with, with the story that you've been reading. So it's kind of this sideways or a different look at a lot of the same ideas. Um, so now Sarah's going to read this text for us, and I encourage you to encounter this as a poem. Maybe close your eyes and just kind of let the images wash over you or hit you. This is Job 28. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold to be refined. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Miners put an end to darkness and search out to the farthest bound the ore in gloom and deep darkness. They open shafts in a valley away from human habitation. They are forgotten by travelers. They sway suspended, remote from people. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and its dust contains gold. The path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud wild animals have not trodden it, the lion has not passed over it. They put their hand to the flinty rock and overturned mountains by the roots. They cut out channels in the rocks, and their eyes see every precious thing. The sources of the rivers they probe, hidden things they bring to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Mortals do not know the way to it, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be gotten for gold, and silver cannot be weighed out as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it nor can it be exchanged for jewels or fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The chrysolite of Ethiopia cannot compare with it, nor can it be valued with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and Death say, we've heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned out the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the thunderbolt, then he saw it. He established it and searched it out. As he said to humankind, truly, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. The word of God for the people of God. 
Thank you, Sarah. So obviously this poem is concerned with finding wisdom. Where is it? How do you know when you found it? And throughout this series, we've seen several different perspectives on wisdom. Dan shared with us the kind of the stark, uh, maybe cynical, kind of world-weary wisdom, maybe in quotes, uh, of Ecclesiastes, where everything is vanity and it doesn't really matter and you're going to die anyway. And we may not embrace that perspective entirely, but it can serve, uh, I think, as an important corrective or palate cleanser or something that kind of cut through the bullshit and kind of disorient us so that we can be reoriented toward Jesus. And I shared a little bit of the kind of the naive optimism of Proverbs, which is very pragmatic and down to earth and kind of, you know, don't get too drunk, be nice to your parents, work hard. Good advice, but uh, maybe not the most helpful when you're really suffering. So here in this poem, I think we have a perspective on wisdom and understanding that that maybe sits between those two extremes to some extent, something that's a little more mature, that I think really sums up a lot of the themes of Job uh, as a whole. And it does this this by presenting two different stories uh, or ways of relating to the world. And the first is the way of mastery, as signified by the miner. The miner sees into the depths of the earth and brings out all these magnificent treasures. Uh, Andrew Renz recommended this image to me, which I'll um, explain some about in a little bit, and I'm, maybe Andrew will have something to say as, as well. But first, I want to let people just react to it kind of first, first glance. What, what story is being told here in this image? What impression do you get of this miner and, and what he's doing? It's almost like an idealistic kind of lighting. Good. Other other thoughts? Yeah, I was glad you said idealistic, because when I see this, I almost think, like, if Norman Rockwell were to paint a mind scene, <laughs> this might be what he came up with, you know? Um, it has this character of, of uh, really... It's almost like it's valorizing the American worker. I, I, I immediately think of this as an American worker, even though mm. it may very well not be. We'll see. Right, but, <laughs> but, but this sort of valorization, regardless of the, the blue-collar, sort of everyday worker, um, and, and even in, he manages to make this sort of grimy, horrible situation. He doesn't look like he's covered with copier toner, which is probably how he look. <laughs> Um, he instead, like you said, he looks bright and shiny. And Pretty clean for a miner. Yeah, actually. Exactly. Yeah. Why is his hand red? Is that blood or is that a glove? Is it a glove? I, I don't know. It's not as red as the original. Yeah, it, this okay. projecting into a green wall, so it might be. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like the Marlboro Man of mining. Like, <laughs> like, you know. Robust. Robust. You know, in the West. And so this guy, like, like 
stick. Like he said, like these probably wouldn't be super clean. It wouldn't like he wouldn't look so like you know, pretty excited. And this must be like hour one of the work that he just started. Right. Yeah. And also like what is with the onlookers? Are they just like like are they impressed by his feet? Are they like are they working too? Or like has the machine taken over? Like what's all these questions about like Right, could be a, an ad for Camel cigarettes or something, or or come be a miner. It's great. You won't get black lung. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Andrew, I don't know if you wanted to, to share anything about. So when you chose two to like what what images would put go twenty eight and twenty eight is one of my favorite passages. So I needed to knew, oh yeah, that's right, it's the one with mining. So then I thought of this guy. Um, it's uh, Alexei um, Stakhanov, Stakhanov uh, who um, was this Russian kind of hero during the early Soviet era because they had these productivity targets. And then he was the guy who um, was just knocking down all the targets. He's the heroic worker. But he's also a miner, right? He, he was a miner who could just produce, produce everything. He could, like, they set the target, he'd take it out, then the next one. And, and this is valorizing sort of the Soviet worker. But, but we also, we, we, um, we similarly kind of valorize production in our own society. So if you're an academic, think not of, of the miner toiling away putting his targets, think of the guy who publishes all, you know, he out publishes everyone, he's got the most articles. It's the same kind of thing, right? Why are you producing so much? I mean, it's, you know, you, know, you don't have the sort of capitalist excuse of, well, because then you can sell more stuff, right? It's just you're producing for the sake of producing. And the reason I thought of Job 28 is because mining is, and maybe it's a little harder for us to see it, but, but in a lot of societies, mining is kind of maybe the way we think about the moonshot, right? Like, this is society's technocratic mastery of, of, over nature. This is, you know, like other animals, you know, they like animals can fly, animals can die in the water, but they can't do this thing. We can do this people can do this thing. And, and it, it's the most powerful symbol of, of effort, of striving. Here, the, the Soviet workers striving actually sent, I don't know if you managed to squeeze that in too, uh, uh, another image of heroic South African workers, um, which is a capital, capitalist uh, statue from my own home. Mm, yeah, no, yeah, I saw that, that image. Yeah. yeah, that was a good one too. Yeah, this kind of... And, and so it's not just about the Soviet Heroic Soviet worker, there's heroic uh, capitalist workers too, at least the statue in my hometown, um, of this is, this is man, resting stuff from the earth. And, and the Bible says, well, no, doesn't matter how deep you dig, you're not going to find anything. All these heroic images of people, and there's no wisdom anywhere to be found. So I thought it was so interesting, Josh kind of assumed that this was kind of an American figure, but I think you can see it in any society, really. Um, yeah, I think this is a, a perfect image of the kind of way of mastery presented in the first part of Job 28. It happened to literally be a minor, which works out well. But we could have looked at any number of images uh, from advertising or culture or whatever of this kind of heroic worker and this kind of mastery of nature that leads to knowledge and technology and, and civilization. And the poet here in Job lived in a world where, where human civilization was just starting to have this kind of mastery. And clearly, we experienced that in a way that that person could never have imagined. Um, I've been very thankful for air conditioning 
these last several months, obviously. You know, we eat, uh, Chelsea talked about the, the food question, but we eat, you know, we're used to a way wider variety of foods than anybody in the ancient world could, could have imagined. I don't know about you, but I usually don't walk outside and think I really need to avoid getting killed by lions or bears. You know, we don't, we don't worry about that kind of thing. And clearly the poet here knows uh, as much as anybody knew, seemingly, of his contemporaries about the science of, of the day, of kind of metallurgy. And, and that person would have found what we know to be incomprehensible. And all that stuff is great. I mean, I love my iPhone. We love the fact that we can keep in track with our relatives who live you know, hundreds of miles away. Uh, I think we're all thankful for modern medicine and stuff like that. That's all great stuff. And I think the poet really does have nothing but admiration for the miner and the skill of the miner and, and the, the wonderful things they bring out. But we would be fools if we thought that all the stuff and the technology and, and the knowledge that makes our lives better is actually making us any better. In some ways, it might just be making us better at killing each other. The great African-American theologian, uh, Howard Thurman, we read his uh, book, Jesus and the Disinherited, uh, probably maybe a year ago in, in pub group. Um, he was a contemporary of uh, Martin Luther King Sr., so early, earlier 20th century, wrote, the challenge for modern man is to match spiritual and moral maturity with the amazing power created by mastery over nature. We've learned part of the secret of energy by unlocking the door of the atom, but continue to be moved by prejudice, greed, and lust. So the poet's turn here, kind of in the middle, should not surprise us. When Dan led us through Song of Songs, we heard, you can't buy love, as the Beatles said. If one offered for love all the wealth of one's house, it would be utterly scorned. And here we see that's also true of wisdom. You can't, you can't buy wisdom with the treasure you dig out of the ground or the money you earn. There's a mine for silver, there's a store for iPods, but there's no place where you can just get wisdom. Only God knows the way to it. God knows of a way better than the way of mastery. And I've got to be honest, there's a risk that this can sound kind of trite and kind of cliched. It's a little kind of greeting cardish, a little too much like Ebenezer Scrooge learning his lesson at the end. But I want to push us past seeing this as some kind of cheap Aesop's fable and then God knows the way. The answer is Jesus, yay. Because I think the writer really is pushing us toward a truly radical alternative story. This image of the miner and the gold is powerful and attractive. And it might even be good, but it's not good enough. The poem pushes us, if not away from this story of human mastery, at least deeper than that story can go. Deeper than the mines, deeper than the ocean depths, deeper even than the grave. What is wisdom? The fear of the Lord is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. The second way, the way of wisdom, is the way of humility. Now we've talked some in this series about how Hebrew poetry kind of worked. Um, English poetry you know, is usually, or frequently at least, uh, signaled by some kind of rhyming or meter, although not necessarily. But Hebrew poetry uses what's called parallelism, 
one line will make some kind of statement, and then the following line will make a statement that either uh, says the first thing again, maybe in a little different way, or counterpoints the first statement somehow. And you see this all throughout our poem today. There's a mine for silver. There's a place to refine gold. Out of the earth comes bread, but underneath is turning fire. And so I find it interesting how this poem ends with this kind of declaration by God who alone knows the way of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. And to reject evil is understanding. This is, this is a parallelism. Wisdom and understanding are different sides of the same coin, which means the fear of the Lord and rejecting evil are also parallel ideas, or, or maybe the same idea, just said in a different way. But this whole thing, the fear of the Lord, that sounds bad. I don't know about that. What? I want to throw that out. What are the ways you've, been, you've maybe heard that uh, in the world or in churches or, or whatever, or the ways you've been taught fear of the Lord, what that might mean? Yeah, I, 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 people are often very quick to say it's not really fear, it's respect. And um, I tend to think that there's real fear involved. And, um, so as, as a person raised in California, who's going body surfing and has been in waves that are very powerful. I, I really, I more than respect those big waves. I fear them because they can just slam you into the bottom and, and hurt you. And um, and when I think of was it um, Peter in the boat when he was confronted by Jesus and he was trembling in fear, mm-hmm. I I don't, I don't want to be too quick to push that aside and say no, it's just respect. So a healthy fear, of, yeah. it might be, yeah. it might be good. Others. I was immediately thinking of what Jim said, and I also think another way that in the Christian I come to inoculate ourselves from language like this would be like, well, the fear of the Lord is really for the other guys, right? They should fear the Lord because they're not like us. Mm-hmm. They found an out for the fear of the Lord that we have. And so, yeah, you, you should be afraid of God, but only, only those things. Right. If you're one of the good guys, you don't have to be afraid. Yeah. Any other, Josh? I wonder if we could maybe make a distinction between fearing something and being afraid of something. Like, I would say that in a a sort of mutual love-based relationship, like, I would say in a lot of situations, I fear my wife. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not not afraid of her, if that makes sense. Um, You know, (laughs) I am also afraid of her. I think so often the way that the that fear of the Lord is mobilized into a conversation is you better be afraid because of all the bad stuff that God can visit upon you. Mm. Whether that's in this life or once you're dead and he condemns you to hell, there's there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot more firepower on his side of the equation. So you better be afraid. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, I think, you know, if if someone were to, let's say, you know, in, in this type of economy, right, you go to work, you get the, the notice that you're being laid off. That's a fearful conversation to have with your loved ones. But it's not something that you're afraid of them, but rather that you, you sort of fear the, the disappointment, you fear 
uh, all, of the, all of the intense emotions that will come out of that encounter because of the incredible amount of proximity and love that's involved in the relationship that has to now bear this, this hardship. So it, it, maybe if we could pull those apart just a little bit, I think it may make a little more sense. Yeah, yeah I think the relational context is key, not at the risk of uh, invoking Jim's ire for... Um, because I think you're right that we may be too quick, we may be too quick to get away from kind of fear language. But I think in, in a relationship context, the idea of honoring, fearing your parents, respecting your parents, not not without an element of uh, the mystery and the power of God, but that doesn't stop you from from going surfing. So um, I think it's an attitude you take that is a sense of your own true self, not as someone who has mastery over nature, but as someone who's created as, as part of nature, all of which is deeply loved by God. And so the poem places this whole thing of the fear of the Lord, this kind of recognition of, of your human place relative to God, maybe what we might normally call our beliefs uh, or our worship or our faith, directly smashed into this ethical idea. To depart from evil is understanding. And so in this sense, the way, here in this text, the way we relate to God as worshipers and kind of what we're doing here, singing songs and that kind of stuff, can never be separated from the ethical choices that we make every day, from what we eat and how we treat our neighbor and all of those things. Everywhere we're, see, we're encouraged to see that fearing God and departing evil, loving God and loving others, are always really one thing. Um, in, a, in a few minutes before we move on to the music, Josh is going to lead us in a liturgical kind of participatory version of Job 28. Because I really want us to focus on these questions that echo throughout the text. Where is the place of wisdom? Where is the place of insight? There's a sense here that the very search for wisdom is its own kind of wisdom. Because there's a humility in the act of searching, of admitting, I, I don't have all these answers. There's a humility that's the opposite of the story of mastery. And this kind of search can be really hard. But the poem encourages us to keep asking, where is the place of wisdom? What do we do here? How do we deal with this situation? I also came across this image, um, and I hope some of you got it with your handout. Um, It's by Honoré Damier. I don't speak French. Um, And it's of two sculptors, if you can't tell, looking at at a sculpture that I guess one of them is working on. Something about the intense look on the face of the sculptor on the left made me think of this whole thing of searching for wisdom. I think it's Michelangelo said that you don't don't make the sculpture. You, You find the sculpture in the rock somehow. And I don't... I don't want to push this metaphor too far, but in some way, the sculptor is kind of the opposite of the miner. If the miner is the way of mastery, maybe the sculptor is the way of humility. Stakhanov was, was frantically mining as fast as he could. I think 100 tons in like six hours or something of coal. But the sculptor here is, is waiting and looking and kind of pondering and maybe asking his friend for advice. The sculptor might even use a lot of the same tools as the miner with chisels and stuff like that, but the story of the sculptor isn't one of mastery. 
and extraction, but of the search for beauty and expression and truth. And I think here we see not just the finished product. I mean, I don't know what that sculpture was going to look like, but we see the beauty of the process of sculpting. The kind of the process and the search itself. And I think that process, the work, the search, maybe even literally the manual labor, can be the source of insight for us. Chris Rice shares the story of Nelson Mandela, who I'm sure all of y'all are familiar with, um, who was in prison for 26 years on Robben Island uh, in Cape Town. And I, I always imagined him sitting in some cell somewhere, maybe like chained to a wall or in a, like a prison. But he actually labored in a limestone quarry for 13 of those years. I didn't know this. Every day he would break up rock uh, at one end of the quarry and haul it to the other end of the quarry and break up more rock there and, and haul it back. Chris writes, It's there in the limestone quarry at the very time that apartheid reigned and there was no guarantee of a different future that within Mandela, the vision for reconciliation in South Africa was born. To imagine and pursue a future of friendship with the enemy, the one who is difficult to love, from inside of the limestone quarries of our lives is foolishness, a scandal, a kind of madness, really. To become gripped by such a madness, it seems to me, requires a story from beyond, a story that is bigger than yourself. I think that's the truly radical thing we discover in this text, the kind of the gospel for us here, hinted at, but gradually becoming more clear through the scriptures, is that the wisdom of God is the humble wisdom of the cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Jews demand signs, and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to us, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. The declaration that that God alone knows the way to wisdom should guard us against the kind of pride of our own mastery, our own certainty, our own assumptions that we know everything we need to know. But it should also be an encouragement to us that wisdom exists, and insight exists, and understanding exists, And God offers those things to us, not through the way of mastery, but through the way of humility, in a way of life shaped by the fear of the Lord, the recognition of oneself as a person, in a community, in a world made and sustained by a gracious and loving God, and, always and, by our communal ethical lives. As we say many times, the the work of binding and loosing, of talking together about what it means to do good, and to depart from evil. And amazingly, this is the way that God demonstrates for us. The poem from Job tells us not just that God's the one who establishes wisdom and the thunderbolt and all of this stuff, but that God searches it out. I want to let the weirdness of that image sit with you for a minute. God is also, in some sense, searching for wisdom or probing it or seeking it. Jesus was also one who searched for wisdom on the night before he was betrayed, praying all night because he didn't know what to do. The same situations we talked about before of what's right and wrong and how do we know what to do in the face of societal questions. God's no stranger to any of them. 
And when Jesus went down into the ground, it wasn't to dig up treasure, but because he was dead. And yet, it's from that very ground, that very quarry, the new life and wisdom and understanding comes from. Because the wisdom of the cross is also the way of resurrection. So Josh is going to lead us uh, again in reading a version of this text kind of collectively. And so if you named one of those situations or you didn't, um, where you were at a loss what to do and don't know what to do personally or socially, um, let this be kind of our prayer and the beginning of our time also of confession. Okay, so if you'll flip over the, the sheet that has the, the scripture text on the back, you'll see a version that has this sort of repeated refrain that we've been looking at that comes back several times. Um, so if you will join me where you have the bold italic text. Yes, there's a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the dust and copper from the stone to smelt. But where shall wisdom be found? Miners put an end to darkness and probe every limit, the stone of deep gloom and death's shadow. The miner breaks under a stream without dwellers, forgotten by any foot, remote and empty of people. We know the earth from which bread comes forth. And beneath it, beneath it is a churning like fire. The source of sapphire, its stones, and gold dust is there. There's a path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have never trod upon it, nor the lion passed over it. To the stone we set our hands, upending mountains from their roots. Through the rocks we hack out channels, and all precious things our eyes have seen. We have blocked the wellsprings of rivers. What was hidden we brought out to light. We do not know its worth. And it is not found in the land of the living. The deep has said it is not in me. And the sea has said it is not with me. I cannot be, it cannot be got for fine gold, nor can silver be paid as its price. It cannot be weighed in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx and sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor its worth in golden vessels. Coral and crystal, not to be mentioned... Wisdom's value surpasses rubies. Ethiopian topaz can't equal it. In pure gold, it cannot be weighed. It is hidden from the eye of all living, from the birds of the heavens concealed. Perdition and death have said, with our own ears we have heard only its rumor. God grasps its path, and God knows its place. For God looks to the ends of the earth, sees beyond all the heavens, 
to gauge the heft of the wind and to weigh water with a measure. When God fixed a limit for rain and a way for the thunderhead, then God saw and recounted wisdom. God both established it and searched it out. God said to us, Look, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And rejecting evil is insight. Thank you, Josh. And thanks, Travis. I, I was uh, thinking as we were looking uh, at the painting of the sculptor that there's a, a waiting um, and a uh, collaborating in this idea of, of wisdom that we need each other but we also have times where we have to wait and uh, I think we get that in this constant questioning and we've been doing that sort of all summer talking about sometimes more questions than answers and uh, when you were describing um, the, the fear of God I was thinking about the scene uh, when Moses is on Mount Sinai and he's uh, talking to God about that God's going to give him the law and they're out of Egypt and they're in the desert and, and uh, um, he asked God if he could see his face and God seems to, uh, to say well I, I, I would but I'd kill you <laughs> so uh, how about I show you my back and so Moses uh, gets to see God's back and he still apparently glows for days which I, I don't know what his God's back looked like but it lit him up like a Roman candle for a while and uh, so I was thinking about that same God being the one who as you mentioned, waited in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and uh, waited on uh, wisdom, waited to know what to do to give his life away for us. And I think there's something in this uh, power of, of God becoming one of us and laying aside that power that would have killed Moses in certain ways and then channeling it into a different place where our redemption and the redemption of the whole world is where that's uh, moving and heading. And I think... This song of confession is a song called Bells, and the bells of the song are really the bells of redemption, the bells that we've talked about with uh, N.T. Wright. Uh, Jimmy brought up N.T. Wright a little while ago and just talking about that redemptive movement of God in the world where it's not a, an us and them thing so much as God wanting to bring all of us to himself and to make things uh, right to make the rough places smooth and to bring up the low places and make them elevated. And So this song is sort of a storytelling, meandering song of the songwriter being a place where he's not sure he believes much in God, but he's waiting. He's waiting for wisdom. He's waiting for God to bring about this redemptive story. So uh, feel free to listen or sing along with us. been a long time, girl, since I stepped inside your world. It's almost like I've never even been there. Though the battle's just begun, I feel the damage has been done. And I know there's nothing left we could repair. And the sermons were sung, and seven psalms were hung on the walls of my dying faith. I'm just waiting for, waiting for them bells to ring. 
There's a statesman in the yard preaching like some bandit bard. But me, I move along most unaffected. I never noticed the decay when things didn't go my way. Life's everything I ever expected. With my warrior mask and ignoble task, listen to the hunter whispering. He's just waiting for, waiting for the bells to ring. You can hear them singing, hey, hey, la, hey, la, hey, 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 la, hey, la, hey, 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 la. Just waiting for them bells to ring. Sing with me. We're singing, hey. Sing it all night long And though the lines have been drawn In the breaking of the dawn I will cross this bridge prepared to fight And though my blood may be shed I feel the peace lies up ahead Till the bell frees healing light and ring if it does like Picasso's peaceful dove I will fly free, far away Cause I'm just waiting for Waiting for the bells to ring Sing with me Singing hey, hey, la Hey, la, hey Hey, hey, la Hey, la, hey mountains, ringing out through the valleys, ringing out for my homeland, and the blood in the alleys, ringing out for the drunk ones, ringing out for the sober, ringing out for the lovers, who know that it's over, ringing out for the hungry, ringing out for the homeless, ringing out for the righteous, ringing out for the hopeless, ringing out for the blackness, Ringing out for the soldier, ringing out for the future, waiting over your shoulder. Ringing out for the sinners, ringing for the accuser, ringing out for the winner, ringing out for the loser, ringing out for the orphans and the disbelievers, ringing out for the honest and the deceiver, ringing out for me. Ringing out for you, babe, and all the things that we've been through. Sing with me, hey, hey, la, hey, la, hey, 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 la, hey, la, hey, 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 la. Just waiting for them bells to ring.
That idea that we need each other for wisdom is probably uh, a pretty countercultural story to many of us. And uh, so this song, I think, as our absolution is something that says, I really do need you to help me see the sun.
So where is wisdom? I mean, I, I don't know if you're like me, but I think a lot of times in our lives, uh, we have to kind of tell ourselves stories, don't we? I mean, you know, you don't spend eight years in graduate school without lying to yourself a little bit. There's the idea that I'm doing this, I'm pursuing this track, I'm pouring all this effort into it, that at the end, I'm going to find something of worth. The idea that I'm going to get somewhere. You don't pour 30, 40 years into a job without lying to yourself a little bit. By saying, hey, I'll have accomplished a whole heck of a lot by the time I finish my life working for this company. Oftentimes, I think, we readily substitute the notion that there is an event or an occurrence where we will achieve what it is that we've been looking for. That at some moment, some time, it will be there and we'll have it. And that if we apply ourselves, if we stick in there, if we work really hard, then that is there for us to take. That through power, through our pretty brilliant ingenuity, through cleverness, through whatever it may be, that we will actually get it. The only problem is we come off a lot of times looking pretty foolish because what it is has often changed completely by the time we pour our lives into it. The it is often completely redefined. I think one thing that this passage from Job, as Travis so uh, well point us, pointed us to tonight, that, that it says to us is that Wisdom is not an it per se, but it is a path. That it is a path to be tread on. It is a way of moving. It's not necessarily a destination, but it is a course, a route to be taken. And that often can look very foolish. After all, there are different types of wisdom, right? There's economic wisdom. There's political savvy. And I think as Travis pointed out also, we as a church are those people who are gathered by a wisdom that sometimes look, looks very foolish. Because it is the invitation of God to us to be invited into the path of walking the path of a radical love. Walking a path where a cross sets the direction of how we walk together. That it is not through our own extreme force and power that we win wisdom for ourselves. But it is in this quirky way of laying down our lives that we find God is there to give us those lives back. As we come to the table tonight... Just like any good path, if you follow it through the woods, if you're walking, it has markers along the way. 
to lead you forward. As we come to the table tonight, we practice one of those markers. We practice a central marker of the church where we break bread for one another, handing it to one another, saying the body of Jesus broken for you. Recognizing that and doing that, sharing with one another, sharing our lives, sharing our resources, sharing our talents, sharing relation and love with one another is a marker of the path that leads us toward life with God. As we pour wine or juice for one another, saying the blood of Christ shed for you, we share with one another a new sense of power. That it is by giving our lives, giving the very blood of our lives, that we're led toward wisdom, not through taking the blood of other people. So as we come to the table tonight, we take one more step along the path toward wisdom. We take another tiny, tiny step. And we do it as a community of those who share in the understanding that God has created these gifts, that God has given God's grace through Jesus Christ into the world, and that we therefore can live differently. We can live according to a different wisdom. We can live on a different path as a result of that. At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table, meaning all of you are invited to come. We break bread for one another, handing it to one another, saying, the body of Christ broken for you. And we share wine or juice with one another, saying, the blood of Christ shed for you. And we do that recognizing that together we are those pilgrim individuals who are walking a path together toward the wisdom of God. After we're done with communion, I'll call us back to the middle. We'll sing one final song of benediction. If, if you look at that song as we're singing it, you'll recognize that there's images there of the hammering, of the work, and of the, uh, this idea that we are continuing to work to walk along a path that leads us toward life with God. I invite you now to the table. Come receive the grace of God as the good gifts of God for you, the people of God. Amen. So let me invite you back uh, to sing this song of benediction. Also, want to say hey to uh, Kelsey and T. I just saw them. Hey guys, welcome back. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, so they're old Emmaus wares from what is it? Has it been four years now? Is that how long you've been out in Seattle? Five? Maybe five? Wow. It's hard to believe. It's good to have you back. So we're going to sing this song of benediction, and as you go out, please go out with the grace and peace of Christ uh, to be those who pursue the path of God in the world and in this community in Durham. One of these days I'm going to lay this hammer down. I won't have to drag this weight around When there ain't no hunger and there ain't no pain No, I won't have to swing this thing One of these days I'm gonna lay this hammer down One of these nights I'm gonna sing a different tune Silver moon.
one of these nights I'm gonna sing a different tune One of these days I'm gonna lay this hammer down yeah, John Henry was a mighty man He worked his whole life long But when he made that hammer ring He always sang Wait around when there ain't no hunger and there ain't no pain, and I won't have to swing this thing. One of these days, I'm gonna lay this hammer down. More time, sing. One of these days, I'm gonna lay this hammer down. You guys have a good week. Thanks for being with us tonight.